Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerds Me podcast. On this episode, we release from the Carrick Institute Vault Part 2 of Professor Carrick's discussion on PTSD. In this episode, Professor Carrick discusses further the relationship of fear, reward, and integration of the brain and humankind with specific emphasis on individuals who suffer from disorders of stress after trauma. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, here we are again talking about uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome and brain functions. We had left off last day when we're talking about fear extinction or getting people to be able to not react to fear the same way that they did before. So we call this fear conditioning and you can look with functional MRI at the brain when individuals are conditioned to fear. So it's almost like watching Psycho the first time uh, when she's in the shower and you see uh, Tony Perkins coming in and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's terrible. You watch it again, you watch it again, you watch it again and the fear response is not as great. So during fear conditioning, we have activity in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and we find that the blood oxygen level dependent responses, the bold responses, go up in uh, individuals that don't have any stress syndrome, but they actually decrease in individuals who have post uh, traumatic uh, stress disorders. So that is to say the blood oxygen level dependent responses go go down. We talked last day that in these patients when the bold responses go down, the amygdala lights up, it increases, but in controls we find that as the bold response, the blood oxygen level uh, dependent responses as they go up, uh, we find that the amygdala response goes down. So there seems to be an inverse relationship where as bold responses increase, amygdala responses decrease, or we would say that as the uh, bold responses decrease, then the amygdala responses uh, do uh, increase. So exactly the opposite. And this is why it's so very important to have good breathing in people when we look at brain functionality, etc., etc. And you can look at your uh, pulse oximeters and you can look at giving mental tasks or environmental potential and just look and see, is the tissue, tissue saturation the same or is it uh, markedly uh, different? Now, once you look at the same fear response over a period of, of time, you keep on giving them the same sort of uh, you know, fear response, we find that uh, when an individual has these fear responses a day or so after they learn that one or two of the condition environmental potentials was innocuous and bother them at all, uh, then the uh, galvanic skin responses or the, the skin uh, responses themselves, these autonomic responses, are going to be smaller uh, compared to fear stimulus that has not been extinguished so that individuals that have a greater response to fear are going to have a greater autonomic response and that skin cutaneous response is going to be uh, is going to be uh, greater with individuals that have had uh, stressor. So we have some really interesting interesting uh, sort of things that are happening and what it all says is that 
if you have uh, failure to activate the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and hippocampus when you're thinking of a oh boy a fearful experience in your life and you have overactivation of that dorsal anterior cingulate cortex during recall that this these two things together are going to contribute to a deficient expression of extinction, uh, extin uh, extinction memory, if you would, in the post-traumatic uh, stress disorder patients. So there's been some interesting activity by uh, Rougemont Bucking, and this uh, was some activity that was published in 2010 in the Central Nervous System Neuroscience. And what they found, some really interesting, interesting uh, types of effect uh, showed that um, not only do patients maintain fear responses to conditioned stimuli, that is to say the patients that have post-traumatic stress disorders, that they maintain them, but they generalize these responses to the context in which the, the cues that were fearful were individually uh, presented. So what are we going to say? We're going to say that part of this post-traumatic stress disorder is a dysregulation in the unlearning of fear responses. You should be able to condition with things and habituate to, the, to them and they'll actually decrease, but individuals with post-traumatic stress disorders cannot uh, do that. So this, uh, this is very, very uh, Im important. Now, um, we're looking at the, this idea, emotional numbing, uh, seems to be an element of post-traumatic stress syndrome. The person just becomes uh, flat. It doesn't, of course, have a fear-related uh, correlate. So some interesting activities. And the other things that we look at, of course, with fear and memory is reward, just like with animals. You know, if you jump over a thing, you get a little piece of liver. You get a little lollipop. So uh, some interesting uh, effects in the literature as of late, uh, which I think is, is pretty exciting for us. Uh, some some uh, papers published in 2009, Biological uh, Psychiatry, shows a study by Elman and Lowen that looked at uh, a study that had a little bit of a question in their methodology, but it gave some interesting data on the alterations and reward-relating processing in post-traumatic stress disorder uh, patients and it looked at you know a different sort of methodology to look at it. And they use functional MRI to take images of the brains of individuals that did this wheel of fortune game and what they did is it was designed to induce both the expectancy of a reward which corresponded to the spinning phase of of one of three wheels and the outcome which is a gain or loss of money when the wheel Stop. Now, this type of experiment is used a lot with the individuals with Parkinson's disease when they're given a dopamine agonist because we develop this compulsivity of gambling, that addiction, if you would, of uh, gambling and uh, other types of excessive uh, behaviors. So, based upon uh, this activity, and again, you know that with the Parkinson's model, you're looking at the dopaminergic system. And based upon that termination patterns of dopaminergic neurons, Elman and uh, his group, what, what, what they did is they expected 
alterations in the reward signaling that you would see in the striatum. Of course, the targets of this mesencephalic dopaminergic system. So, uh, as would be expected, they found less activation to monetary gains uh, that, uh, that occurred versus losses in both the dorsal and ventral striatum in the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder patients when they compared those with controls. So they, they had a difference in relationships to the idea of winning or the idea of losing. And so when they looked at gains, they found less activation uh, with gaining versus losing. So the concept of losing had a greater activity in both the dorsal and ventral striatum. And remember that the dorsal striatum is the target of the feedback areas to the caudate and cutamen from the frontal cortex, whereas the ventral striatum really is very, very specific to receive activation from the mesencephalic a dopaminergic tegmental activating system. This is an area that is really driven a lot by contralateral cerebellar activation and integration, whether it be from exercises or movement of your arms or of your legs, uh, it really doesn't matter. So what about this, this change in the activation of the uh, dopaminergic system in regards to reward or loss? The, the decrement was correlated by Elman uh, with a self-reported motivational and social deficits as well. So they really, really go hand in hand. And so individuals that have different concomitants of movement disorders or other types of effects in ADHD, anybody that has an aberrancy of this frontal uh, stratal dopaminergic activating system, people that have hypotonia on one side will decrease the activation of that system on the other side. So we've got a whole load of clinical evidence that's really going to be looking at motivation and reward and all of these higher human types of uh, types of effects. Now, if you look at individuals that don't have a history of post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, and if you give them the threat of discomfort, of, of suffering or pain that's associated with a potential reward, then the ventral striatal activation goes down, as well as activation of the ventral anterior uh, cingulate cortex. And that's really, really exciting. And the people that did that published in the Journal of Neuroscience in 2009, that's uh, Telmi and Dayan and Keeble. And they looked at the integration of the prospects of pain and reward during, during choice. And this really was a pioneering understanding of the neural basis of reward. And it basically shows us is that the possibility of having something that is not comfortable, it reduces neural activity, subserving reward uh, expectation, and it does this in the ventral uh, striatum. And this is the area that receives the uh, bombardment from the mesencephalic uh, ventral uh, tegmental dopaminergic system. It is the area that's activated by contralateral cerebellar type of integration. So uh, really some real exciting areas. Well, what does this mean for your individual patients who have a pain syndrome and are supposed to do an exercise with the consequence of getting better, the reward? Well, you know, they're not going to have as great amount of, of activation uh, there. And 
you know, this is really, really uh, very, very uh, exciting. Now, Elman and uh, his group, what they did is they looked at the outcomes of their study and they considered it to mean that we had a primary decrease in the capacity to experience pleasure because if you decrease this ventral striatal activating system, uh, if you decrease this ventral uh, anterior cingulate cortex, you're not going to have this joy. So <clears throat> it really is possible that the decreases in striatal activation in post-traumatic stress disorders can be linked to perhaps this anticipation of pain or suffering that are involving, you know, the fear processing that occurs as a consequence of our human uh, neurology. But it also is going to tell you that individuals that have decreased activation of these systems will also have a decrease in in their experience of pleasure and, and they may be a little bit flatter and on the other hand individuals can really ramp it up so if you want to get people excited about what they're doing uh, giving them arm exercises interactive metronomes some light stimulation some auditory stimulation such as what i give you at the end of these podcasts to not decrease the fear of the next podcast but to reward you uh, for listening and hopefully Hopefully, uh, you can experience the joy that, that I find in, in this music. <clears throat> so what are you going to do? Well, of course, uh, the mainstream is looking at drugs. In other words, what sort of drugs are you going to give to people that have post-traumatic stress disorders? And these would be drugs that would certainly affect the areas of the brain that we've talked about, specifically serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And in fact, these are approved pharmacies for the use in post-traumatic stress disorder and of course uh, behavioral therapy. Uh, one thing is very very good is that the eye movement desensitization EMDR is really very very uh, successful. Well you use eye motions in, but not in the same way as EMDR. I think we do it a lot a lot better but serotonin reuptake inhibitors they don't work as well as the eye movements isn't this exciting for us and eye movements basically left-sided brain slow saccades up and to the right and a pursuit down into the left when you look at right-sided decreases of brain integration in that system slow saccades to small targets up and to the left and then uh, slow pursuits down to the right so uh, about half of the people are going to get better using the combinations of the eye movement desensitization and cognitive behavioral therapy and a variety of psychotherapies. And uh, the big question is half of the people don't respond with the pharmacy in this contribution. Why not? So we're going to be able to look at imaging that's going to tell us the areas of the brain and then we can develop things that are very specific to them and hopefully in a non-pharmaceutical and that is what I'm very actively and passionately embracing now with my own personal research, especially in the world of coma and persistent vegetative state and minimally conscious uh, states. Now, uh, we've had a lot of uh, other uh, great interest uh, with these types of fear and loss of reward types of activities. And uh, Bryant in his uh, group published in the Journal of psychiatry and neuroscience in 2008 when they looked at uh, prediction 
of uh, treatment response to cognitive behavioral therapy for those people that had stress, and they measured activity in the rostral anterior cingulate gyrus. So you know where everyone is doing the same, same sort of thing. So they use this cognitive behavioral uh, therapy uh, with the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they were able to improve their individual scales of outcome uh, in you know a good percentage of their people, about 50% of them, but half of the people didn't do very, very well. So they looked at the half that didn't do well with the half that did do well looking at these um, structural MRI scans and they did them before the therapy and after the therapy, similarly to what we're doing with our new dystonia trials and functional MRI. And in, in other words, if you look at structure in the brain and then you do something to it, the structure can change functionally uh, as a consequence of the environmental potential. And boy, we have some exciting things on the horizon that I can't wait to share with you. So anyways, what did Bryant uh, find? Uh, his group found that the, the non-responders, the people that didn't get better with cognitive behavioral therapy, they had... Uh, with significance, smaller rostral anterior cingulate gyrus uh, cortical volumes compared with the people that did better. So how wonderful for us to know that individuals that become a little flat or they're, they're going down or they've got pain in a variety of things, and we look at that anterior cingulate gyrus cortex, these people are harder to, to get motivated and harder to treat and harder to get better. We know when it comes to fear and the ability to get rid of fear that the cingulate cortex is is primary in the extinction of fear uh, learning. And uh, anytime uh, we look at um, oh post-traumatic stress disorders or individuals who've had industrial accidents or something's happened in their life, the, the inability to get rid of that baggage uh, really tells us that these disorders are really disorders of extinction. So, <clears throat> excuse me, what does this mean for us? It means to say that if you've got a patient that's got larger anterior uh, cingulate cortical volumes, then these people are better to be able to control a variety of responses, including fear, and they can over, um, well, they don't overstimulate, but they can, they can avoid that that overwhelming stress response that can reduce a variety of therapies that we see in a variety of stressful uh, patients. So it tells us that this anterior cingulate cortex is really implicated in this cognitive control over emotional processes. And you know that many of your patients just don't do well emotionally when they've been suffering for, for a long period of time. So how do you fire it? You fire it through the activation of this frontal striatal dopaminergic activation uh, system, which is largely cerebellar and, and structural and due to the tonus of muscles in the individual uh, extremity. So if you look at the, uh, the Swedes, and we've got a whole load of, of uh, Swedes that listen to these individual podcasts, they wanted to look at the neurological basis of different responses to to eye movements, and they really wanted to look at um, eye movements in individuals with post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, and they wanted to look at their gray matter density 
interlimbic and paralimbic uh, cortices. And they published this just a little while ago in 2010 in the Journal of Psychiatric uh, Research. So Nardo's uh, group uh, gave the people these eye exercises, EMDR, and then they looked at the gray matter density by MRI, and they did this in uh, train drivers that had some accidents, you know, uh, they can have, uh, you know, run over somebody uh, on a train track and develop these stress syndromes. So they looked at these train drivers that had post-traumatic stress syndromes and gave some eye exercises and looked at their gray matter density. Well, some people get better with our therapy, some don't, and the people that didn't get better to the eye movement exercises, they displayed a decreased gray matter density in in their brain in areas including the posterior cingulate, uh, the right amygdala, when you compared uh, their uh, gray matter density with individuals that did get better using the eye exercises. So we, we also realized that the changes, functional changes if you would, in the brains of our patients can really predict the treatment response to a variety of our therapies. And now it really tells you more so that you've got to embrace a clinical examination that is absolutely uh, exacting so that you can map that person's clinical functional brain to understand the things that you can do, perhaps to make the brain better so that your therapy regionally might have a greater consequence in causing individual uh, changes. Now, when you look at individual changes of, uh, of activity with individuals that undergo, um, oh, you know, psychological therapies or so, when you're, you're going to the psychologist or the psychiatrist or to a good qualified chiropractor who's going to give you a report of findings and hold your hand a little bit, the people that don't respond to this sort of thing, uh, these people show excessive bilateral amygdala and ventral anterior uh, cingular cortex bold activation where you're looking at this oxygen delivery system, the blood oxygen levels uh, are, are gonna be you know, excessive. And, and these are excessive when people are just uh, in the MRI scanner and they, what they do is they give them like ugly faces fearful faces, scary faces, mother-in-laws, and all this sort of uh, sort of thing. So uh, the imaging is really good, and we're going to tell you a lot more of what we're going to be doing if you are uh, going to listen to Calisto Macado, our colleague, and he's a professor with us uh, of neurology and neurosurgery. We have some just exciting stuff that's going on. Now, let me tell you about uh, some study that was published in the Journal of Anxiety Disorders in 2009 by Osuch and Benson and Lukenbau, and they looked at some very, very uh, interesting uh, repetitive frontal transcranial magnetic stimulation, you know what that is, and they did this with imaginal exposional therapy. So they, they also uh, did this with individuals with post-traumatic stress disorders, but they only had a, a small grouping, only eight patients, and they, they looked at eight patients with post-traumatic stress disorders that were refractory to, uh, to all other types of, of treatment. And this is very, very important. What do you do with, with your people that don't get better? And, and of course we have them, yes? So why? Why does one group get better and why does one group not? 
they didn't have a control, but what they found was they had a little bit of a decrease in hyperarousal symptoms uh, that they found by doing the transcranial magnetic uh, stimulation. So uh, you can't stimulate them with a magnet across their head as well, which means to say what? That they're hyperpolarized? Uh, why can you stimulate other people? So we've got a new concept of people that have stressors, especially the post-traumatic <clears throat> excuse me, stress disorder that really represents a dysregulation in approach avoidance behavior. And what does this mean? More pharmacy, of course. And now uh, there's an, M an MDMA class A substance that's becoming important. It's a, uh, a methylene dioxymethamphetamine. Uh, I hate these drugs. But anyways, it's, it's big and it's being tested in people who have post-traumatic stress disorder resistant patients. So nothing seems to work. Well, nothing seems to work. And I can tell you because they haven't had your talents in a study. We don't do these studies. Why don't we do these studies? Because we don't have the money and funds. So write a check to our research uh, branch. Everything goes to research. There's no salaries. Everybody uh, volunteers. So get some bang for your buck. Or if you've got a group of uh, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder syndromes, it'd be nice to treat those. It would also be nice, I'd love to get these people are refractory and put them in a functional neurology uh, trial. But we've got to show some things before people are going to, uh, to give them. But in any event, uh, we do find that when you look at uh, some of the, uh, the work with these uh, psychotherapeutic drugs, uh, that make you euphoric, you know, gives you a big old trip. Um, it's thought that if you give people these methamphetamines, that the euphoria is going to counteract the fear responses during therapy and allow people to get rid of their uh, fear and uh, cause extinction. And in fact, uh, yeah, it, it sort of works, but you know, at what cost? Anyways, um, anything for the uh, drugs. What, what does uh, methamphetamine do? It, uh, it causes serotonin release, which gives, um, you know, some different activities. It also releases oxytocin, which, uh, which interestingly enough, if you look at oxytocin and the brain, it decreases amygdala activity to fear-inducing uh, breaches in trust, uh, in trust rather, and it increases your trust-related behavior. So nice to know if you're having a baby, right? So oxytocin, uh, people are getting on the bandwagon now and they're using it as a putative pharmacological tool in individuals that have these psychological disorders and post-traumatic stress uh, disorders. So we're looking at some complex uh, relationships between brain function and structure and individuals that develop post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. We look at all of the literature really tells us that we've got to look very carefully at the activation of that uh, limbic hypothalamo-pituitary axis. And that means to say you've got to uh, check your cortisol levels on individuals that are refractory to your treatments, not only people with post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. So we, we can get a corticosteroid-related neurotoxicity, of course, and we know that that limbic hypothalamic pituitary axis can be activated 
when you activate brain activity, but in individuals with aberrant uh, activation of their brain, it's easier to activate that axis. Or what do we say? When you decrease brain activity, you're going to uh, increase the the autonomic nervous system. And in these individuals with stressors, when they decrease volume, they can't attenuate these autonomic system and that limbic hypothalamo-pituitary reticulospinal axis goes crazy. You'll hear it called the hypothalamo-pituitary adrenal axis or the reticulospinal activating system or the limbic hypothalamo-pituitary adrenal axis. Well, it's activated any times you, ha you have decreased brain activity. Decreased brain activity, increased activation of that limbic hypothalamo-pituitary adrenal axes. Well, it's more frequently activated in individuals with stress disorders after trauma. So this is so very, very important. And the more we know about these things, the more we can test our individual treatments. Can you imagine the treatment of people in the VA and other uh, areas by properly trained functional neurologists? Now we have chiropractors in the VA, but they're primarily doing musculoskeletal uh, type of work, low back pain. But I think that we'll probably have some changes in affect on some of these people that have stress disorders that come in with musculoskeletal uh, types of uh, injuries. We know that uh, things that scared you before, usually you, know, you don't really worry about the monster under the bed when you're a little bit older. Sometimes you worry about the monster in the bed, but not underneath the bed anymore, so that we all have fear extinction. We get rid of the things that used to, to bother us, but people with post-traumatic stress disorders can't get rid of that fear activity, and as a consequence, when they are presented with something fearing, they've got enhanced autonomic concomitants, and they have changes in the activation of the hippocampus, the anterior cingulate gyrus, the medial prefrontal cortex, which is evolved with, with this type of stimulation. And when we look at these individuals, we also look at what's the reward of getting better. Are we going to do something uh, as a consequence of I do it, I get this, or I don't do it, I get this. So when you look at individuals that have stress disorders, the the brain reward responses are attenuated. It doesn't really work so very, very uh, well. So it's pretty obvious that uh, the world is looking at these stress disorders after trauma as a dysregulation in that approach reward and fear avoidance uh, processing. And that's frontal striatal dopaminergic. Now, if you activate that limbic hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axes and uh, you're going to get some neurotoxicity because you're firing away so very very much because you can't attenuate it you can see how, how how this lack of reward is just not going to uh, going to work so very 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 uh, well okay well let's start looking at our patients and now when you look at your MRIs look at the structures and look at the volume of the anterior cingulate cortex, look at the volume of the uh, hypothalamus, uh, look at what's happening in the amygdala, look at what's happening with that frontal stradal dopaminergic system. Remember, by the time someone gets a Parkinsonian type of tremor, they've lost 50% of the dopaminergic neurons in the nigra. My oh, my oh, my oh, my. So uh, let's get on with it, and uh, I think we're gonna make some big changes in the world as we're coming up.
If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.